Incarnation is an interesting thing. It's something that we maybe think about more at this time of year than any other. Um, I think it's really interesting. But nowhere in Scripture do they argue for the Incarnation. The case for the Incarnation is never made. They just say it happened and then move on. It's assumed. It just was. They knew it happened. They tell us it happened. And then they go on to tell us what to do with that. And today I want to think about that. I want to think about the implications of the Incarnation. What does it mean? Um, If I was a talented theologian like Bob Ackroyd, who we've had preaching here before, I would maybe talk to you about the explanation, I'm not going to do his accent, the explanation, the implication, and the application, but I'm not. Instead, I'm going to tell you, I'm going to look at some questions. I'm going to say, what? What was the incarnation? So what? And now what? So what? So what? And now what? What what is the incarnation? What happened? And what do we mean when we talk about Jesus coming in the flesh? I mean, these are all words we've maybe heard. Incarnation features quite a lot in some of our um, Christmas carols, you know. The incarnate deity, hark the herald angels. What does it mean? Well, On one level, it's really straightforward, and on another level, there's quite a lot going on. I want to try and unpack it a little bit and look at the two passages that we read, also maybe drawing from other places as they tie in and fit into it. At its most simple level, incarnation means taking on flesh. That's what it means, incarnate, becoming flesh. It's actually a really earthy phrase. It's a really quite... Um, visceral phrase and that that kind of ties in with the passage we read from Philippians when Paul talks about the flesh the word that he uses in Greek kind of literally means the meat it's it's not a pretty word it's not a fancified word for the beauty of the human form or anything like that it's the meat so Jesus who is God took on human flesh became meat he became embodied as a human being a real one. The Bible is pretty clear, though, that he didn't stop being God. He didn't become either, did he become some weird kind of hybrid, some sort of half-man, half-God. But he was, at one and the same time, still fully and entirely God, but also fully and entirely human. Now, I'm going to be upfront with you. That is a tough idea to wrap our heads around. But sometimes I think we're just going to have to accept that that's what's going to happen when we think about God. When we're discussing the things of God, sometimes the things that an almighty, um, all-powerful, omniscient God does are going to be beyond our understanding. But the point is, the important thing to grasp is that the Bible tells us that it is true. And that matters far more than whether we can get our heads around it or not. It's true. And I think we're, we're used to thinking of the Incarnation, especially at this time of year, we are used to thinking of the Incarnation as being Jesus' birth, his nativity. That's the moment of Incarnation. That's when he came in the flesh. The nativity story. That first Christmas. And yeah, that's a big part of it. That is a big part of the Incarnation. But it is only part. It's a moment. It's a snapshot of the Incarnation. 
because it is way more than that. It's way more than just the moment of Jesus' birth, the moment he first drew breath. Because his incarnation starts with his conception. That is the moment that he became enfleshed. It starts way back there. And it goes on throughout his life, his death, and even his resurrection and his ascension back into heaven. All of those events involved an incarnate Jesus with a physical body. It's not just that Jesus became a man. He lived and died as one. And he is a man right now in heaven. He is both God and man, divine and human. But the other thing that I think we can lose sight of about the incarnation is it's actually really, really shocking. I mean, lots of the surrounding nations would have had um, demigods, kind of half God, half man, the offspring of gods and people. Um, They might have had stories about gods possessing human beings for a time, working through them as avatars. There might even have been some stories of of gods temporarily taking on a kind of assumed physical form. And then you had the various kings and emperors like the Caesars who would declare themselves to be gods. But this is different. Because the God of Israel, the God of the Bible... He wasn't like all these pretend gods. He was infinite. He was spirit. He was not part of the creation. He was the creator. John tells us that the word, that Jesus, was the one through whom and by whom all things were created. And now he comes into that creation. He took on flesh and dwelt among us. Verse 14. And even today, Jews and Muslims find the idea of God the infinite taking on human flesh in this way to be absolutely scandalous, really offensive. And in some respects, they're right. It is scandalous. The creator coming into his creation like just another part of it. The word through which all things came to be, taking on all the trappings of flesh, bound by by meat and sinew and blood and bone. It's shocking. It's ridiculous. It's no wonder so many people have struggled with this idea. But it's also miraculous and supernatural and we can't shy away from that fact either lots of people through the ages have really struggled with the idea of miracles it's been a stumbling block for many people this idea of miracles and the supernatural and today it's mocked it's rejected it's laughed at and the result is that many churches have tried to play miracles down they've tried to kind of avoid dwelling on them too much or maybe say that they're they're more symbolic than a real account But that is not what the Bible says. And we can't muck about here. This was a miracle, a significant supernatural act of God. And it's a fact. It's not a morality tale. It's not a fable. It's not a parable. It's not a fairy story with a moral. It's a fact. Our faith is grounded in the miraculous, but it is also grounded in history and in fact. And if somebody wants to dispute that with us, well, that's fine. But as long as they recognize that what they are disputing is a fact claim, not an opinion. It cannot be true for you and not for me. 
or true for one and not for another. It's either true or it isn't. We claim it as a fact. The Christian faith rests on the factuality of the incarnation, the conception and the birth, the life and the death, and the resurrection and ascension of Jesus. But, so what? So what if it's true? So what if this is what the incarnation means? Why does it matter that Jesus took on flesh? What does it mean for us right here, right now? What are the implications of the incarnation? Well, one of the most important things to recognize is that this is not a divergence. It's not a new story or a plan B. It's a new thing. It's a thing which had never happened before. But it is part of the same story that runs throughout the Bible. It was always the plan. The reading that we had from John's Gospel there, John begins his Gospel with the words, In the beginning. And that is a clear connection back to the book of Genesis, the book of beginnings, which starts with those same words, In the beginning. That's where John sets this tale, in eternity. Jesus didn't only come into existence when he was in flesh, when he was conceived. That's not the point he started. He was always here. He was there in the beginning. When everything started, he was right there starting it. Um, Professor Donald McLeod, the late Donald McLeod says, The nativity marks not the beginning of Christ's existence, but the perforation of history by one from eternity. This was the moment the Eternal One stepped into our history in a real and significant way. But he had always been there. And it was something that was both foreseen and foretold. Back in Genesis again, if we were to look at Genesis 3, when we read about the fall, when Adam and Eve sinned, God is pronouncing judgment on them. He's told them that there's going to be alienation between them and each other, between them and the land, because they've alienated themselves from God. He then goes on to speak to the serpent, which is Satan, and he says this to Satan. He says in Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. And now, now we see the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, becoming what? The offspring of the woman. Way back in the beginning, Even then, the plan was always that Jesus would take on humanity, be born of a woman, to come and crush the head of the enemy. If we look back at John uh, chapter 1 and verse 14 again, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the only begotten Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. The word which John has already said is with God and is God, puts on flesh to dwell among us. To get up close and personal. See, for Christians, God isn't distant. God isn't far away. He's not unknowable. He put on flesh. He wore the meat so that he could live among his people. When Isaiah predicted the coming of the special one, the great one, he called him Emmanuel. We hear that again a lot at this time of year. O come, O come, Emmanuel. 
The Gospels refer back to this, that his name is Emmanuel. What does that mean? It means God with us. God with us. The same creator who made everything. That should blow our minds. God with us. And because of that, because he got right down in the dirt alongside us, because he got grubby and dirty and flesh and blood with us, we get to see the glory of the Son of God. Because Jesus deigned to share our humanity, because he was willing to walk not just in our shoes but in our flesh, he is knowable. And in becoming knowable, God the Son makes God the Father knowable to us as well. We can know God. Our God is both transcendent and imminent. Big words. What do they mean? Well, they mean that he is way, way more than us and in many ways beyond our understanding. But at the same time, he is right here with us, knowing us and making himself known to us. The God of the universe. And in becoming flesh, he honours us. He honours his creatures, his creation. He shows us that the meat matters. So we can't ignore it. We can't think that what we do with our bodies doesn't matter. It was into an embodied human existence that Jesus came Now, as with every single aspect of our lives, the fall and sin have tainted our physicality. But Jesus shows us that that is not how it has to be. God made us to be embodied. And Jesus shows us what that should be like. We are way, way more than just our bodies. But they they are part and parcel of what it means to be human. There's more. If we skip over to Philippians, Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, we read this speaking about Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. Jesus, God by nature, the creator and by rights king and lord and master of all, took on the nature of a servant. That's what happened in the incarnation. He put aside the glory that was his by rights and he humbly lived a life of service. He willingly did that. The ultimate status downgrade, he did that For you. Let that sink in. And he didn't just live as a servant. If we go on to read verse 8. Being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself and became obedient to death. Even death on a cross. See. The big conundrum. The big problem for humanity. Sin. Rebellion against God, alienation from God. Right from the beginning, it was made clear what the consequences of sin were, what the price of sin was. Death. We have that right at the beginning of Genesis. Eat of the tree, you bring death. 
That's what the whole Old Testament sacrificial system was geared to remind people. That sin results in death. So in order to deal with humanity's sin, in order to fix that problem and that alienation, somebody has to die. But it can't be an ordinary sinful human being. Because all they would be doing would be facing the penalty for their own sin. And you're right back where you started. I mean, realistically, somebody would have to be God to pay the price for sin. But God can't die. And how would it be fair? How would it be just if somebody who wasn't human stepped up in our place to represent humanity as their as their their representative? How would that be fair? And so the incarnation. We needed a God who could die. And he needed to be able to do so on our behalf. But not just to die, because it was in the flesh that Jesus rose again. The gospel writers, they are really clear on that. They describe him after his resurrection among them. They talk about people meeting him. They talk about people touching him. They talk about watching him eat. A human being raised in a human body raised from death, never to die again. That's incredible. And while Jesus may have been the first to do that, he will not be the last. His resurrection in the body is a promise to those who trust in him. It's a glimpse of what the future holds. And that still isn't everything. Because after Jesus rose from the dead, he stayed around for a while teaching, and then he went back to heaven. Philippians 9. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. So first Jesus humbles himself by taking on flesh all the way to death, the ultimate humility in the grave. And then God the Father exalts him in the flesh. Jesus ascended bodily and even now, sitting in his rightful place at the right hand of the Father, he does so as both God and man. There was a a famous free church professor called Rabbi Duncan. Some of you might have heard of him. He used to say that because of this, the dust of the earth sits on the throne of the universe. That's incredible. First, the glory of heaven erupts into the world of flesh. Then the dust of the earth, the flesh, is exalted to the heavens. That's the incarnation. Not just a baby in a manger. First, Jesus stoops down by becoming one of us. Then he returns to heaven, opening the way so that we can be like him. He became like us so that we could be like him and be with him, preparing a place for us to go. Because the incarnation and redemption, they are tied so tightly together. Without the incarnation, there is no redemption from sin. There is no hope for the future. By taking on flesh, God the Son gave us the opportunity to be right with God. That is why it matters. That is why the incarnation is huge. And that is why the incarnation is not just for Christmas. 
But if that's the so what, now what? What if anything are we going to do with all of that? What are you going to do with it? Well, John has something to say about that to us. John chapter 1, we go back to that again. Um, Verses 11 and 12. John says of Jesus, He came to that which was his own, or those who were his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. So once again, the gospel presents us with two choices. Jesus came, but many of those who should have known better, who should have known who he was, those who should have been his own, they refused to receive him. They wouldn't have him. Nope, none of that. Not having it. But, for those who do believe, who do accept him, they get to be counted as the children of God. Which side of that are you sitting on today? Which side of that choice are you on? Are you unfazed by the incarnation? Are you blasé about it? Do you still think it doesn't really matter? It's, it's just a fairy tale. It's symbolic. It doesn't apply. Or do you see the implications of the incarnate Jesus, God in the flesh, the God-man who lived, died, and lives again, reigning in heaven? Because if you do, Paul has some words for you as well. The gospel is full of words for us, isn't it? It's amazing. If we flip back to Philippians again, um, in uh, verse 12 of chapter 2, we see he starts that verse with the words, Therefore, which means it refers back to what he's just been saying about Jesus' incarnation. What he says next is the effect that should follow the cause, if you like. And what does he say? He says, therefore, in verse 14, do everything without complaining or arguing, so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a crooked and depraved generation, in which you shine like stars in the universe, as you hold out the word of life. So the truth of the incarnation, you see, it's not just theoretical theology. It's not just something for our minds. It should affect how we live. Because Jesus did all this, we need to live accordingly. Without arguing and grumbling with one another. I'm going to be honest, that's tough. Putting others first. If Jesus, who is God, could live as a servant, then so should we. That's what Paul says. And just as Jesus was God embodied in this world, so we are the church embodied. Not just when we meet together like this. He came and lived on earth to show God to a people who needed to see him. There are still people who need to see him and now we are his witnesses. We need to live out our faith incarnate. Not just A spiritual faith, but an embodied one. One that people can see. One that people can hear and touch and see the effect of. And we need to be ready for the fact that just as Jesus taking on the flesh is shocking, so sometimes us living out our faith is going to be shocking to the world. 
We need to follow Jesus with our whole lives so people get to see what that looks like. So that, what is it that Paul says? So that we will be shining like stars in the universe as we hold out the word of life. Shining like stars in the darkness. Not so that people will be impressed with us and go, ooh, get him. But so that people will see right past us to see Jesus. That is a real challenge. But Jesus has redeemed our whole lives. Not just the spiritual side. Not just what we do when we're sat here in this room together. Our whole existence. And we can also look forward. Because Jesus didn't shed his humanity, his incarnation when he went back to heaven. He shows us the way. He has bridged the gap between God and humanity, between heaven and earth. Now, in some ways, what what I want to say is almost a sub-point for what now, which is, what next? Because this is not where the story ends. Jesus didn't live, die, rise again, ascend to heaven and say, that's it. End of story, no more. Because there is more to come. If we go back to Philippians again and we read um, from verse 9 to verse 11, we read, Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus incarnate and embodied God and man is coming back and that too is part of the incarnation these words that Paul uses they they are riddled with Old Testament themes of God's rule coming Jesus' humanity wasn't something that he put on for a season while he needed it and then took it off like an old coat when he finished with it It's still there. He became flesh to come alongside us, Emmanuel, God with us. In the flesh, he ascended to open up a way for us to God. And in the flesh, he is coming back. Which will be the completion of the work of restoration that he started by taking on flesh in the first place. He is redeeming the creation and he is coming back to finish that job. And when he does, those who are trusting in him will be like him, embodied. Did you know that? Because I think too often we think of eternity, we think of the life to come as being purely spiritual. We'll be flitting about the clouds, maybe playing harps, maybe singing to God's glory. But it's a spiritual afterlife we think about. Putting aside the body. You know, we're done with the physical and we can just enjoy our spiritual life. Well, that's not what the Bible teaches. Not at all. Just as Jesus was raised embodied, incarnate, with a human body, so will we be when he comes back. Not the weak and failing flesh that we know today, with all its problems, with all its ailments, with its aches and its pains, but restored bodies like Jesus has what the human body should be not angels still human still less than God but so
so much more than we are today. That is what the incarnation means. That is why it is world-shaking and why it should change our lives. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us so that we, in our flesh, can dwell with Him. That's what it means. So are you willing to receive him as the people who should have were so often not? Are you willing to receive him and be called a child of God? In this season, as we think about Jesus' birth, is that all the incarnation is to you? A pretty Christmas card scene? A snatch of words and a carol? Or do you see the wonder of the incarnation, the full implications of it, what it means. Do you see the amazement of God and man brought together in one person, reconciling God and humanity? All that that means. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Is that not the most amazing thing you have ever heard? The Word became flesh and dwelt among us so that we may one day dwell with Him. Praise God.